This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, President Trump's budget, it is a doozy. Over $800 billion in cuts to Medicaid over the next 10 years. And obviously, that's going to have a direct impact on health coverage for millions of Americans, as well as a number of other safety net programs many Americans rely on. Some 10 million people now covered by Medicaid will lose that coverage. And this will be a huge blow, not only to those losing coverage, but to the states that rely on the assistance to oversee access to health care for their most vulnerable citizens. The president's budget will give states more flexibility to impose work requirements on those seeking Medicaid coverage, requiring more so-called skin in the game for Medicaid recipients. And another program expected to take a big hit is SNAP. That's the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which provides food assistance to some 44 million Americans including poor seniors and children. And Mark, I think if there's one thing everybody knows, it's that good health, good nutrition go hand in hand. This could be a real blow to working families and to seniors on fixed low incomes. It really could, Margaret. The president has instructed his budget director to look into ways to limit the Social Security disability insurance, which supports those under 65 who are living with disabling conditions, which affects their ability to work. The president seeking ways to incentivize more able-bodied recipients to get off disability and, quote, go back to work. And, you know, Mark, there's another area that's been long overlooked and has left many Americans out of an important aspect of health care, and that's oral health. And our guest today is an expert on that topic. Mary Otto is a longtime reporter for The Washington Post, focusing on dental and oral health. She just released a riveting book on the topic, Teeth, Examining the Evolution of the Dental Industry in This Country, and How 100 Million Americans Lack Access to Dental Care. And Lori Robertson will check in, the managing editor of factcheck.org. She looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Mary Otto in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News. I'm Marietta O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The president's budget has dropped and it doesn't bode well for folks who are poor, insured by Medicaid, or who rely on food assistance. The budget guts $800 billion from Medicaid funding over 10 years, which has led analysts to predict some 10 million Americans will lose coverage, including many children and dual-eligible seniors. Trump's budget includes $1.7 trillion in cuts from so-called mandatory programs. That includes cuts to refundable tax credits paid to the working poor. In addition to the health program cuts, the budget calls for 25 percent reduction in funding for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known as SNAP. The $274 billion rollback in SNAP over 10 years is being called a welfare reform program. Meanwhile, the Trump administration has begun dragging its feet on deciding whether to continue to fund the Affordable Care Act subsidies aimed at defraying the cost of paying for health plans on the insurance exchanges. The administration has asked for a 90-day extension on a decision, which is giving insurers little time to set premiums for 2018. And there are many other unanswered questions, whether consumers will be required to have continuous coverage or pay a penalty, and whether the Trump administration will provide support for outreach to online insurance 
market consumers. He shortened the upcoming open enrollment period from three months to six weeks. If Trump is granted a delay, it puts insurers and state insurance commissioners in a tight bind. Due to the uncertainty, insurers want to raise their rates as much as 53 percent for next year. And to juice or not to juice, that is the question. And the answer is, that depends. The American Academy of Pediatrics is advising parents to refrain from giving their babies any fruit juice before the age of one and never in a bottle at bedtime. Fruit juice is much higher in sugar, exposing them to tooth decay and sugar-induced weight gain way too early. Kids who do drink juice should cap their consumption at four ounces per day for toddlers, four to six ounces for kids to six years old and eight ounces for children seven to 18. They say the best way to meet a child's fluid needs are water and low-fat milk. Guess a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, but it, it wreaks havoc on children's health. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Mary Otto, Washington, D.C.-based journalist and longtime Washington Post writer with a specialty in health coverage, particularly oral health. She is the author of a recently released and critically acclaimed Teeth, the story of beauty, inequality, and the struggle for oral health in America, which examines the inherent divide in the American healthcare system between dental care and medical care. She is the oral health topic leader for the Association of Healthcare Journalists and has received numerous awards, including the 2007 Congressional Black Caucus Brain Trust Leadership in Journalism Award. She earned her bachelor's degree from the University of North Carolina and master's of fine arts from Rutgers University. Mary, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much. Yeah, and congratulations. Uh, it's a great book. And, and you've spent a large part of your journalistic career focused in on the economic disparities that impact health and perhaps one of the areas uh, where the disparity is most clearly defined as oral health. And you start your book off with really a, a chilling account of a 12-year-old boy's death from untreated dental abscess. And I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners that story and tell us how common that is. I was working as a reporter for the Washington Post, and you know, I was standing at the hospital bedside of Diamante Driver, and he was a 12-year-old Maryland boy, and it turned out he was dying of complications from tooth decay, as you said. Bacteria from an abscessed tooth had spread to his brain. And I discovered that Diamante's death was part of a much larger story. Uh, you know, inexpensive routine care might have saved him, but he was a poor Medicaid child, and most Medicaid children were not and still are not receiving routine care. And they're among more than 100 million Americans who experience significant barriers in getting dental care. The vast majority of, of Medicaid children could find medical services like immunizations and mm -hmm. checkups they needed for school. But dental cares remain much harder to get for many people. One emergency room study that looked at like three years during the recent recession found 101 patients died in the emergency room for dental infections like Diamante had. But the fact that they even still occur is, is mm -hmm. just so shocking. 
You know, you've addressed this chasm that really exists between oral health and the rest of healthcare. Dentists traditionally are trained completely separately from medical physicians and health professionals. So how did dentistry come to be so effectively siloed away from the rest of healthcare, really going back to the 19th century? It began in Baltimore, where the first dental college in the world opened in 1840. The founders of the school informally trained dental practitioners. Like in those days, dentists were kind of considered tradespeople, called themselves dentists and started mostly extracting teeth. They thought dentistry deserved to be, you know, a science and, and a medical discipline. And so Chapin Harris and Horace Hayden approached the physicians at the very prestigious College of Medicine at the University of Maryland and They suggested adding this course of dental instruction to the medical classes there, and the physicians rejected that proposal. They said the subject of dentistry was of little consequence, and that event has has gone down in history as the historic rebuff. It continues to define the relationships and the system that we still have today where dentists look at our teeth and mostly drill and fill, and then physicians still look at the body from the tonsils south. You know, it's a, it is interesting. The dentists seem to have been immune to the transformations that have happened on the medical side. It's so odd that in this world of so much need for dentistry, we see people who are spending their money on cosmetic dentistry. And I'm wondering how big the rise of cosmetic dentistry is in the industry and how this trend is negatively impacting those who still lack this access to preventive dental care. Well, cosmetic dentistry is a large part of the marketplace for dental services now, and and we're talking about elective procedures. Cosmetic dentistry goes way back, though. I found out that um, photography and dentistry have had kind of a intertwined history since the very beginning. I mean, Chapin Harris, who was deeply involved in clinical dentistry, was a great admirer of teeth. He said that they gave beauty and symmetry to the face. And the very year that the first dental college was open, the first U.S. patent was awarded for a camera, and the patent was granted to a a dentist. Photographs kind of held up a new mirror to, to our society. They standardized ideas about beauty and how smiles should look. And motion pictures, which came along later in the 19th century, helped kind of kindle this popular obsession mm. with smiles. And in Depression-era Hollywood, movie actors still didn't look like the Hollywood smiles we think of today. But a young dentist named Charles Pincus looked up at these stars that didn't have quite perfect teeth, and he said, I could change this. He invented a veneer. It was called a Hollywood veneer. It was a little snap-on appliance that stars flocked to him for, and they snapped these over their teeth, even little Shirley Temple. And so we never saw her lose her baby teeth. I mean, we always thought of her as having perfect little <laughs> pearly teeth. So but you know, And the, the cosmetic dental boom that we know of today took off in the 1980s with, you know, the invention of far more sophisticated kinds of veneers and bonding materials and and dentists have embraced this as part of their practice and a very lucrative part of their mm-hmm. practice. Americans spend a billion dollars 
a year on just teeth whitening products mm-hmm. and much, much more on all these different elective procedures. Well, Mary, all of these forces contribute to just huge variability in terms of people's access to dental care. Even with the Affordable Care Act and the Medicaid expansion, it's still variable what services are covered, and hence the emergency room once again becomes the safety net of last resort. Can you speak to this issue of uncompensated emergency room care of dental problems, why it's so destructive and costly? Emergency rooms, they take all comers. In times of pain, an emergency room will take you. Any hospital that accepts Medicare and Medicaid is required to screen and stabilize, Mm -hmm. you know, anyone who shows up. And people who go to emergency rooms for dental problems very seldom get the dental care they need. Mm -hmm. You know, they receive a prescription, and they're told to go to their dentist for the care they need, but many of them don't have a dentist. They're among these more than 100 million Americans who experience barriers getting routine care from the private practice system. When I was working on this book, I learned the story of of a young man named Kyle Willis. He was a hardworking young guy, and he went to a community hospital with an infected wisdom tooth. But his family found out later he only had enough money to fill one of the prescriptions, so he chose the painkiller, and the antibiotic was more costly. So a week later, he was rushed back to the hospital, and this time he was in an ambulance. He suffered a hemorrhage in the lining of his brain, and died, and the cause of the death was cerebral edema due to a dental abscess. Oral health is part of overall health, and during that decade, there were about 61,000 hospitalizations for abscesses, and those hospitalizations cost an estimated $860 million, so costly and preventable with routine preventive care and even, you know, simple restorative procedures. We're speaking today with Mary Otto, journalist and author of the recently released Teeth, the Story of Beauty, Inequality, and the Struggle for Oral Health in America. And Mary, you do in your book address some emerging trends in oral health, and we're seeing as a model medical, dental, and behavioral health as embedded in the primary care setting. And Certainly, we're hearing about uh, dental extenders, hygienists. I wonder if you could speak to our listeners about some of the care innovations attempting to fill the gap. There are hopeful signs. And I was able to visit a FQHC in Baltimore, and it serves 30,000 patients across the wider community thanks to this medical home model where dental, medical, and mental health are all provided under one roof and dental records are integrated with medical and mental health records. The dentists talk with the physicians and the nurses, and these interactions, they're called warm handoffs, hold some promise for helping not only address this gap between dental and overall health care, but there are a number of states that are known as direct access states where dental hygienists can go into schools and nursing mm-hmm. homes and, and bring basic kinds of care to the patients. There are, like you said, uh, new workforce models that are being explored. Uh, The community dental health coordinators are a a model that the American Dental Association is promoting. It's it's kind of workers who are trained as health navigators, you know, to, to sort of guide patients, do some oral health education. 
Then there are also dental therapists who, who are now working in mm-hmm. Alaskan tribal areas and in Minnesota in, in public health and private practices, actually. And they're, they're, they're similar to nurse practitioners in the medical world. They do a narrow range of procedures. They drill and fill teeth and, and do some extractions. And organized dentistry has pushed back pretty hard against them, but a number of states are considering adopting this model as, as another way of getting care out to the millions of, of people that, that lack it now. Well, we think the real bonanza is in prevention, and certainly there's an element of education and self-care, and but there's also some very important public health initiatives, certainly starting back with putting fluoride in the water supply through new uh, opportunities like sealants and professionally applied varnish. Talk to our listeners a little bit about the actual and potential impact of these public health and preventive measures. Community water fluoridation programs really got their start years ago when, when public health dentists actually saw that people who lived in communities with naturally occurring fluoride in, in their water had less tooth decay And after World War II, community water fluoridation efforts around the country started in earnest, and and decay has been reduced significantly. Studies have shown caries rates reduced between 15 and 40 percent in fluoridated communities. Topical fluoride has helped. People are using fluoridated toothpaste now widely. Professionally applied fluoride varnishes and other things have helped reduce decay. But it's, decay is still, you know, at an epidemic level in this country. It's a multifactorial disease. Diet and other factors still play a big role. Hundreds of common medications cause dry mouth. Many medicines um, cause dry mouth and make the mouth more vulnerable to, to disease. I mean, saliva helps buffer the environment inside the mouth and, and helps the teeth remineralize, uh, but with dry mouth, the teeth don't have that natural defense system anymore. Sodas and junk foods are aggressively marketed, especially to children. And in a lot of neighborhoods where people are at most of risk of decay, these are the cheapest and most available kinds of food. You know, the oral health literacy, as you mentioned, is also very important. Just getting to young parents to remind them not to put anything in a baby's bottle before the baby goes to bed except for water. Just treating oral disease like other kinds of diseases and fighting it with that same kind of energy that we've tackled, you know, childhood obesity, diabetes, and other other kinds of chronic conditions would, would go a long way to helping. Well, that's a great prescription. We've been speaking today with Mary Otto, author of the recently released and critically acclaimed Teeth, the Story of Beauty, Inequality, and the Struggle for Oral Health in America. You can learn more about her book by going to thenewpress.com slash books slash teeth or by following her on Twitter at Motomatic. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. It's wonderful to be with you both, Mark and Margaret. 
Conversations on Healthcare. We want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? The House Republican Health Care Bill, the American Health Care Act, would institute a different system of tax credits for those who buy their own insurance than Obamacare. Let's take a look at how the GOP bill would treat tax credits or subsidies. Under the ACA, tax credits for the individual insurance market are based on income and can vary geographically based on the local cost of a policy. This limits the out-of-pocket premium cost for lower-income individuals to a certain percentage of their income. The GOP bill would change that to age-based tax credits in 2020. Those earning under $75,000 or $150,000 for a married couple in modified adjust gross income would get the same fixed amounts for their age groups starting at $2,000 a year for those under age 30, increasing in $500 increments per decade in age, up to $4,000 a year for those 60 and older. The tax credits are phased out for those earning above those income thresholds. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, in its initial analysis of the bill, said that generally the GOP bill's tax credits would be, quote, less generous for those receiving subsidies under current law. But people would be affected differently, mainly depending on their income level and age, since the bill allows for greater insurance pricing variation based on age. The GOP's age-based tax credits would be smaller than the ACA's income-based tax credits for many lower-income people and larger for those with higher incomes. Cost-sharing subsidies under the ACA, which lower out-of-pocket costs for low-income individuals, would also be eliminated. As a result, the CBO report estimates that fewer low-income people would get insurance through the individual market under the bill, and more higher-income people would do so. Also, because the age-based credits, unlike the ACA's credits, don't adjust based on premium costs in a given location, the change in out-of-pocket costs would vary for those living in high-cost or low-cost areas. And that's my Fact Check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Fitness trackers have become all the rage, especially among upwardly mobile fitness-conscious people seeking to monitor their own health and fitness goals. But another trend has emerged in the age of wearable devices. After a few months, about a third of users simply stop using them, leaving a lot of costly devices sitting on the shelf and not in use. The reality captured the imagination of Tufts University School of Medicine professor, Dr. Lisa Gualtieri. And I thought, 
what if you could take all of these abandoned trackers and give them to the people who could benefit most from them? I jumped in. I set up a Facebook page. So in 2015, she launched her nonprofit enterprise, Recycle Health, an online social media campaign to raise awareness for her program, which seeks donated wearable devices to provide these expensive devices for free to those in need. And then, of course, the next question was, are people who aren't purchasing them interested in them? And we've found out that that's very much the case. At the same time, there are many, many barriers. So we found a lot of people who never downloaded an app to their smartphone. She partnered with organizations working with adults in wellness programs, seniors in fall prevention programs, and veterans as well. Her goal is to start collecting vital data on the deployment of these devices and the impact they may be having on behavior change in vulnerable populations. One of our dreams would be to make it really easy for organizations that have money. So, for instance, insurers to say, the money that we spend on giving people trackers is going to save us so much more than that in reduced health care costs. We really see a lot of potential with populations who are not the ones that the vendors are targeting. She's hoping to expand their data collection on health outcomes for vulnerable populations who gain access to these wearables. These are devices that people weren't using, people no longer want, and other people are being helped by it. It's about as low cost an intervention as you could possibly have. Recycle Health, a simple repurposing of personalized wearables, providing these tools to vulnerable populations, empowering them to engage in activities that can improve their own health. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.